Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become greedier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good morning. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman is a retired U.S. Army Ranger, a paratrooper, and a former West Point psychology professor. He has a black belt in hajutsu, the martial art of the firearm, and has been inducted into the USA Martial Arts Hall of Fame. He has five patents to his name. He has published four novels, two children's books, and six nonfiction books to include on killing, with over half a million copies sold. Colonel Grossman's research was cited by the President of the United States in a national address. He has testified before the U.S. Senate, the U.S. Congress, and numerous state legislatures. He has served as an expert witness and consultant in state and federal courts, and has been an invited speaker at multiple national and international forums. Since his retirement from the U.S. Army in 1998, he has been on the road almost 300 days a year for 19 years, as one of our nation's leading trainers for military, law enforcement, mental health providers, and school safety organizations. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. It's a pleasure Hello, to interview you. I'm with you. I'm such a fan of what you're doing here. Thank you so much. Well, I'm a fan of your books. I finished a couple of your books, but actually, I'm not very familiar with your children's books, and I'm very curious about that. It's a, it's an interesting choice. Can we start from there? Yeah, sure. You know, the children's book, the first one is called uh, Sheepdogs, Meet America's Heroes. And it takes the sheep, the wolf, the sheepdog model, and it plays this out so kids can get it. It chokes adults up. It's really kind of deep. It talks about when the sheepdog was young, he thought there was something wrong with him and that he, he might be a wolf, but he's not a wolf. He yearns for the opportunity to use his skills in a righteous battle. And it's like the ugly duckling when you feel like that you're not, you're not ugly, you're something special. You're a sheepdog. And then we talk about how the sheepdog brings the light to the dark places where others fear to go. And uh, sheepdogs have to travel to distant lands to hunt down the wolves and and the, the wolf lives to destroy, the sheepdog lives to protect. And that's the kid's book in a nutshell. And it really rocks people's world. It's got the original sheepdog essay in the back, the sheep, the wolf, the sheepdog extract from on combat, which has been viral across the decades. And uh, so we've taken really one of the most powerful parts of the book on combat and turned it into a children's book, but it, it chokes people up. So we're excited about those books. We're touching a lot of lives and we're, we're pulling our civilization forward to, to the next step in, the, in this great adventure. These are... These are dark and desperate times, and, and uh, we need our sheepdogs. Why did you choose this topic on killing, I mean, uh, or the subject of killing? I was uh, a young captain, the 7th uh, Light Infantry Division in Fort Ord, California. I wanted to go to graduate school on the Army's time, and I applied to teach at West Point. And I was accepted to teach psychology, and it was really one of the greatest, greatest blessings ever out of my life. But I said, psychology, I, I don't want no stinking psychology, and I'm, a, I'm an Army Ranger, I'm a military historian, but... I thought I would I'll study the psychology of killing, homicide, but lawful killing. As a young private, a young paratrooper in the 1970s in the 82nd Airborne Division, before I went to OCS, became an officer, we had Vietnam veterans all around us. 
and we tried to get them to tell us what combat would be like. And they wouldn't say. It was like this taboo topic. So I thought at the core of the taboo about combat was killing. And so I studied killing. It became my book on killing, sold half a million copies, translated eight languages, Marine Corps Commandant's required reading. But after I retired from the Army, pre-9-11, the only ones who were truly in combat in life and death situations on a daily basis is law enforcement. I began training law enforcement nationwide, all 50 states, every federal agency, and I quickly found out, for those who fully prepared themselves, killing is just not that big a deal. It's academic, it's important to address it, but what's really important is what came out in my second book on combat, and uh, the auditory exclusion, slow motion time, what happens in the event, what happens after the event, how it can become PTSD. That really was most important. My son, U.S. Air Force Combat Controller, went for a search combat tour in invasion of Afghanistan. An early draft of that book is a book I gave to him. The book I literally wrote for my kid going into combat was on combat. Like I said, it's academic, it's important, it's useful. What's really important is what's in on combat, to forewarn and forearm the individual about what's going to happen in the event and after the event, and to be prepared for that and deal with it in a healthy manner. So I've been, been pretty pleased with how that whole mm-hmm. dynamic has processed. It's been good to be a service. I'm 62 years old. I'm on the road uh, truly two, 300 days a year. I've had one sick day in 21 years on the road doing that. I believe I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That. I tell people, waiting at home for me is my bride of 43 years, uh, my high school sweetheart. I just turned 17. She was 15 when I proposed to her. Tell people we are from Arkansas. And two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper, and she's been on this road with me. She doesn't come on the road with me. It's too hard. I, once a month, I sleep in airports. I, I carry an air mattress sleeping bag with me. I, I run to make connections. I'll be in four, five, six cities a week. But the only person on earth more precious than my bride of 43 years is my grandchildren. And we do what we do every day for them, for our children, for our grandchildren, for our posterity for our future. I really believe we've got to walk out that door and give 100%. And it's a joint endeavor. She and I both are, are totally invested in being able to use the gifts we've been given to touch most lives that make the greatest impact. And that's really our great message to everybody. Whatever you're called to do, whatever you're blessed to do, we must do to the utmost of our ability. These are dark and desperate times, and our, our nation cries out to our sheepdogs, our protectors. We try to lead by example. Yeah, I have two questions related to your travel. One is, I mean, you travel a lot. It's impressive, and it has to be exhausting. 300 days, 200 days, that's a grueling, grueling regiment. Have you ever wondered why are you so invested in doing this? I mean, this has become your obsession almost. Yeah. A lot of us love what we do. And that's the most important thing of all, to have a passion about what you do. But again, our, our son is a nine combat tours, Air Force combat controller. Well, he's over there in the fight, nine combat tours. How can we do any less than to give 100% over here? It would be easy to retire if we were selling widgets to housewives or if we weren't consistently called to influence events at the highest levels. And so uh, as our nation continues to fight for 17 years of war, uh, nobody's been drafted into this war. Four years into the war, there was nobody left who enlisted before the war and got stuck with the war. The last time we fought a war with 100% wartime volunteers was the American Revolution. We always had people enlist before the war, got stuck with the war. Long Rose always had the draft. Our law enforcement in the meanwhile was in the middle of a tragic and desperate times. Homicide rate for two years straight exploded like nothing we've ever seen. The single worst year-over-year increase in cops murdered in the history of our nation. Gang crime and gang membership has exploded. Uh, and Latin America is a howling war zone coming our way like a freight train. All that dynamic ties together for a sense of uh, how bad things are 
then if we love our nation, we love our children, we love our God, we got to walk out that door and give 100%. And, I, and my wife and I both share this deep passion to do what we do. In violent times, our cops are dying all around us, our military is deploying around the world. How can we not walk out that door and give 100%? To take whatever we've been called to do and to do it to the utmost of our ability. Yeah, so it sounds like it's almost you derive your sense of meaning from your work. You know, the first step in resiliency, as I teach it, the bulletproof mind, is motivation. To know that your sacrifice is our noble and worthy purpose. And who in our military, who in our law enforcement, does not see evil acts around the world and understand that they are the ones who, who are the, the line between evil in the world and between those that we would protect, all that's good and decent and, and true in this world. The first step in resilience is motivation. Understand how desperately the world needs what you have to give. The sheep are trying to pull you down. We don't need you anymore. Go away. But you see bad stuff around the world in our military, law enforcement, first responders. You see bad stuff every day. You know how desperately the world truly needs what we have to give. I ask uh, police officers, I'm, you know, they pick me up at the airport and we'll drive to the to the training site in the hotel, you know, and, and I get a chance to talk to him. I always try to ask my cops, well, why'd you decide to be a police officer? And one officer told me one time, he said, you know, when I was a kid, my family was all in jail or, or they were on the supply side of uh, the law enforcement equation. And a lot of bad things happened when I was a kid. He said, you know, whenever a cop showed up, things got better. And I decided at a very young age that I wanted to do that. That's who we are. We're law enforcement, military We're the ones that show up and things get better. We're the sheepdog, not the wolf. We don't hurt people, but we're there to protect them in the hour of greatest need. And if you're, if you're a wolf, if you're armed with people around the planet, then you need to watch out because the sheepdogs are there and going to hold you accountable for your behavior. Then the next question is about the schedule. Tell me, how do you manage your routine? And I know you are a big proponent of having routines, having solid sleep, having exercise, having good diet. How are you able to do that yourself when you're on the road, when you travel? The most important thing of all is sleep. If we can manage sleep, a lot of things are, are straight from that point on. And this is the most important thing I think we can cover in this particular podcast. Maybe we'll do a later one on PTSD and impact of combat. But I think it's, this is worthy of our time right now is sleep. Now, keep my weight down is hard. I'm doing it. Follow a diet that, that I, I might fast for a full day. And on a lot of normal days on the road, I'll have a light breakfast in the hotel. I have a meal bar for lunch. I stay with that rigidly. And then for dinner at the airport, if I got time, I might have a nice, well-balanced sit-down meal. But if I don't have time, once or twice a week, I'll just skip dinner. And it's easy to do. You're going, you're motivated, you're acting, you're catching your flight, you're making your connection. It's just a time for a good meal. And I'm convinced our bodies are made for feast or famine. Throughout history, you know, if you got a good, you ate a light breakfast and you ate a light lunch, and if you had a successful hunt, you'd bring it home and you'd eat it for dinner and you'd have a nice dinner. But periodically, you know, unsuccessful hunt, And you end up more or less skipping dinner. And I think our bodies are made for that kind of feast or famine dynamic. It works well for me. And, and there's two things I tell my audience about sleep. You've got to understand, number one, that sleep is a biological blind spot. Our bodies are incompetent at making us get enough sleep because it always happened naturally. Every night, without fail, for untold thousands of years, it got dark. And, and firewood was rare and precious commodities. And, and it was dark. And there's only so much talk and so much sex, nothing else to do. You went to sleep. Our bodies didn't have to make us sleep. It happened naturally. And then Tommy Edison and the light bulb and the television and the video game. And suddenly we have to go 24-7. And our bodies truly are incompetent making us get enough sleep. Our bodies are good at getting enough air, food, water. We have to watch that. 
You ever thought how good your body is getting the right amount of food? How much extra food would a kid have to eat to put on one extra pound a month? If a kid puts on one extra pound a month, by the time he's 10, he's 120 pounds overweight. So bodies are pretty amazing and good at getting air, food, water, though we got to watch all of that. And use of air, food, water at the right time can make a big difference. But our bodies are truly incompetent at making us get enough sleep. It's going to have to make it happen. I'm a big fan of the Fitbit, the Apple Watch, the Garmin with the sleep app. We have got to track our sleep. And so I might go on light sleep two or three nights in, in a row, but then I get the chance. I, I'll get a good 10 hours sleep. I'll, I'm to my room. I got nothing else to do. I curl up and go to sleep for 10, 11 hours and it feel deeply refreshed. And I tell people there's nothing macho about going without sleep. Any 10-year-old girl in a slumber party can do it. The macho thing is to manage your sleep. So number one, sleep is a biological blind spot. But number two, the social media and especially the video games are a social blind spot. If you stagger in the house drunk two or three o'clock every morning, you know you have a problem. If you show up to work hungover because you were drinking all night long, you know you have a problem. You know, you stagger to work sleep deprived because you played video games till two or three in the morning. You have a problem. There's millions of people online right now playing video games. We do this and 10% say, oh, it's a good time to save the game and quit. So they never do that again. We do this, and nobody quits, so they do more of that. It's a constant interactive feedback loop with millions of people right now. They know just the right flicker rate, just the right pattern, just the right plot, just the right color palette to make that video game impossible to turn off. Adults are playing it until they die. Adults are messing themselves and with themselves as they, and where they sit because they can't leave that game. Research tells us 15% of all divorces in America Video games are the cause. It's actually in the younger age, it's probably quite a bit higher. Ain't all that many six-year-olds getting divorces over video games. The video games, and to a certain degree, social media puts us in a flow state. There's nothing wrong with adults playing video games. Block out an hour or two every night. Set a timer. Ding, the timer goes off. Here's your steely warrior discipline. Save the game and move on. People say, oh, I play major, massive, metamorphic online orgasmic game. You can't do anything an hour through a night. I thought, it's cool. It's cool. Decide what's important. Is your job important? Your family important? Your health important? What's that game important? Because that game is what's really important. It's cool. Quit your job. Move into your parents' basement. Draw unemployment. Buy a giant economy-sized bag of Cheetos. Play video games all night long. But if you want to have a job, you want to have family, you want to have health, you've got to control those games. They are destroying us. And if somebody showed up to work or morning formation drunk, he'd kick his ass. If he shows up to work or, or PT formation sleep deprived because he played video games all night long, he needs his ass kicked. It's a social blind spot. Nobody ever told you that. You stagger and work drunk, you know you got a problem. You stagger and work sleep deprived, you have a problem. After 18 hours without sleep, you're impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. After 24 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equals 0.10 above legally drunk. After two nights without sleep, you are psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School will tell you about hallucinations on the third day without sleep. And we are in the middle of a civilization-wide epidemic of sleep deprivation. And remember, our bodies don't know how to make us get enough sleep. We've got to make it happen. Well, we know that sleep deprivation is a key factor in our suicides. Around the planet, suicides have exploded. We always knew that alcohol and suicide was related. In communist Russia, uh, suicides were just rampant. 
the communists locked down on alcohol and brought suicides down. The communists were overthrown. Uh, Russia is a little more free, and alcohol is an open market. You know, it's it, it, it's free market, and suicides exploded. So now the the Russian administration is locking down on alcohol. Suicides go back down again. But alcohol and suicide were always related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment. You make a bad decision. And you never get a chance to rethink it. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. 18 hours of sleep deprivation and really at the level of, of legally drunk for impaired judgment. Our teen suicides are, are at horrendous levels. And what they call tweeners, the, the, the 10, 11, 12-year age is the highest growing group of suicides uh, around the planet. What we tell people is parenting 101 for the 21st century. When you send your kid to bed at night, take their cell phone away from them. Sleep-deprived people can be up to five times more likely to take their life. No cell phone in the room, no laptop in the room. They have got to go to the room and sleep. And they got to sleep in a truly dark room and have good sleep hygiene, like we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Yeah, I just so agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I have so many patients who come in and they say they have problems with depression, lack of motivation, you know, they can't concentrate, they have poor memory, and it must be that because they have depression, ADHD, and they need medications. And when I assess sleep, a lot of the times I say, no, we're not going to do anything until we fix your sleep. And it's not that they're deprived 18 hours at a time, it's that they're deprived chronically, right? Over years, it's just this pattern of undersleeping, that's what's contributing to problems. And we're killing ourselves. So remember, sleep deprivation, a sleep deprived person can be up to five times more likely to take their life. And a cop told me, he said, he said, I had a good girl. He said, she was an A student. She said, dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone every night. You can trust me. But the cop said, he said, I trusted her. He said, a little while later, my little girl took her life. He said, I never knew the hell my little girl was living in. They looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. And she's up all night long trying to defend herself, trying to find somebody to stand up for herself, and finally gave up and killed herself. So my little girl was tormented, sleep-deprived, and bullied to death in front of my eyes, and I let it happen. He said the one thing I could have done for her was take her cell phone every night, let her turn off all the bad stuff in this world. He said, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How do I expect my, my kids to? We're in this epidemic of sleep deprivation and suicides have exploded and it's a new factor. Additionally, traffic deaths, decade after decade, traffic deaths came down were because of airbags and seatbelts and technology. And now traffic deaths around the world are back up again. And the new factor is sleep deprivation. If your kid's going to be behind the wheel tomorrow night, tomorrow they got to get a good night's sleep. I don't care if he's 18 years old, no cell phone in the room, no laptop in the room. He's going to be behind the wheel of the vehicle tomorrow. He's got to get sleep. And the third cause of death of our kids, a major cause of death is drug overdoses. Just taking drugs is impaired judgment right there. When sleep-deprived people do the drug overdose or drug judgments, they're making tragic mistakes. Suicide traffic deaths, and drug overdoses, the three major killers of our kids, and sleep deprivation is a new factor in that equation. And, and as parents, we've got to address that. And, and you know, one, one thing is online is a virtual memory box. And you can take all of your treasures, pictures, photographs, clips, and then I about my own little virtual memory box. You know, we've all got things that 
that make us sad. We don't want to think about that. Let go of it. They're in the past. Can't do a thing about it. We all got things we look back on it with pride. It made us feel good. We look back on it with joy and pleasure. We'll put that in your little virtual memory box. Just a sentence to remind you. That when you start reading through all those sentences you've collected, you organize your life, you organize your mind, and you organize your sleep. So remember that. Sleep is a biological blind spot, and it's a social blind spot. It is killing us. It's eating our civilization apart. So one factor in being able to get good sleep is ability to organize yourself and discipline, right? Can you talk to us about a second, which is then your environment, how you set up your room, and what are the things that are important in, in getting good quality sleep? There's two factors on sleep. When I talk to my cops, when I talk to others, there's two incredibly stupid things that we're doing across the law enforcement community and others. Number one is 12-hour shifts. California Highway Patrol last year came off with 12-hour shifts. 10,000 people went to 12s. Accidents exploded. Internal affairs investigations exploded. At the end of a 12-hour shift, people were exhausted. And tired people will make mistakes. They will do things and say things that will regret for the rest of their life. And I tell my everybody, they want to be you know, 12-hour shifts like firefighters, get all that time off. Well, cops and firefighters, I'm a cop, cops and firefighters like tease each other a little bit. I'll tell them firefighters get asleep on the job. Only firefighters and prostitutes make money in bed, and you ain't no firefighter. And the 12-hour shifts do not work. They're negligent. But the most negligent thing that we do is rotating shifts. Every time you rotate shifts, you are taking every single person and psychologically kicking them right dead in the nuts. Psychologically, just hammering them. It takes up to a full year to fully adapt to night shift. Every time we rotate shifts, we are destroying that individual psychologically, physically, and their family. Research tells us that rotating shifts destroys families. Very recent research, sciencedata.com, look for it. Families can handle night shift. Families can handle day shift. They cannot handle rotating shifts. Rotating shifts are taking years off people's lives and putting everybody behind the eight ball. With the old timers, you know, in, in the law enforcement world, the old timers know what they're doing. Eight hour shift. Bid for your shift based on seniority. You want to stay on nights for life? Then good for you. Stay on nights. Hunt the wolf. You got the seniority? You want to move to days? Good for you. You've earned it. You have the seniority. Move to days. But what happens is the new guys come on and says, I don't want to wait to get seniority to be on day shift. This is no fair. Well, suck it up, buttercup. Because rotating shifts is take years off people's lives, and it's destroying your life. It destroys your family. It destroys you psychologically. The body is not designed to do that. And we've got to get on a, a shift as much as possible and keep that stability. And when you get that seniority, then you go ahead and make that shift. But these rotating shifts that we're doing are destroying us. I tell my police departments, if you're rotating shifts, save up money right now. You're going to be sued. You're going to be successfully sued. You're destroying their family. You're destroying their life. You're taking years off their life. So well, it's all good and well to talk about rotating shifts, but the average person listening to this podcast right now, they can't control that. But I'll tell you things you can't control. I go through Sleep 101. Sleep 101 begins with Nap 101. Naps are friend. Naps are good. But the minimum nap is 30 minutes. It's not a good nap. It's a minimum nap. You're driving the road, your head is bobbing. You take those little micro naps and pull over. If you put your head down for 10 minutes, the alarm goes off. It's kind of a startle response. But as far as sleep deprivation goes, that 10-minute nap was a total waste of time. You put your head down for 30 minutes. You wake up, you're bleary and you're groggy. You don't want to get up. Why? Because you're asleep. It takes 30 minutes for a solid, sound, deep cycle. Dang it. I don't want to get up again and sleep. So nap is our friend. But that means the snooze alarm is not our friend. 
the snooze alarm is always set for 10, 15 minutes because that's just enough time to get the startle response. We've all been there. The snooze alarm is an evil little button that makes you relive the worst part of every day over and over again. And I tell people, do some research on this. The snooze alarm is doing great harm. It's like your body is trying to adapt to 10-minute naps. It's like you're trying to teach your body to take 10-minute naps, and the body can't do it. You're doing physical, psychological harm to your body with that snooze alarm. And what about willpower? What about grit? Have you got determination? Can you suck up a slug and drive on? Is you, are you in charge of your body? Is your body in charge of you? What's the first act of every day to give in to your body and hit that snooze alarm? It's the very first act of every day to hit that snooze alarm. And you know what? Uh, you get a 10-minute snooze, of the ten, a third snooze, you just threw away 30 minutes of your day. You, anybody in the room with you, threw away 30 minutes of their life. I tell people, I will tell you a trick to put 30 minutes of quality sleep back in every day. That adds up to, uh, to three and a half hours sleep back in every week. That adds up to two pure, beautiful nights sleep back in every month. That adds up to 24 nights sleep back in every year. Very simple. Set the alarm a half hour later and get the hell out of bed. Show some discipline. And if you have to, set the alarm for 7 o'clock, 701, 702, 703, 704, 705. And the you that goes to bed is making the you that wakes up. Have that discipline to get out of bed. You know it won't do any good to hit this news alarm. You got another minute, a minute, and a minute. And make yourself get up. Uh, willpower, grit, determination. Muhammad Ali, one of the great champions in history. He said championship began every morning the alarm went off. He said he hated running so much, he put his running shoes on top of the alarm. When the alarm went off, he went to hit the alarm and grabbed his running shoes. Now that's grit. That's championship. So the you that goes to bed, to bed has got to make the you that gets up, get the hell out of bed. The alarm goes off. And tell your body, look, if it's that stinking hard to get out of bed, What's your body trying to tell you? You need more sleep. Tell your body, we got to get up. We got to get up. But I promise I'll get to bed early tonight. Promise your body. Make a solemn promise. We got to get up. But I promise I'll get to bed early tonight. Another little trick that I suggest to patients is to set, you know, most people use phones as their alarms. So to set it somewhere far away where they have to get up to to turn it off, right? It's also a good suggestion because they don't have a uh, temptation to play with their phone or the social media when they fall asleep, right? So just put it away somewhere where they have to walk to it to turn it off. Yeah. If you got, if you have to, put the alarm where you're gonna get out of bed to turn it off. The next step is naps are our friend. Uh, the snooze alarm is not our friend. It's pure evil. And then the dark is our friend. We've got to sleep in a truly dark room. Major study, a sleep lab, you're in a truly dark room. The bathroom light is on and the door is shut. The light coming out of the crack of the bathroom door is enough light to stop your body from producing the melatonin that you need. Uh, and the docs tell us that just the glowing numbers on your clock can be too much light to stop your body from fully producing that melatonin. What we do is create a truly dark room. We put aluminum foil over the window to block out our light. But what I like, and I truly think this is good, is get as dark a room as you can and wear the sleep mask. The sleep mask, when you start using that sleep mask, the mask goes on and it's a message to your body, oh, it's time to go to sleep. And nothing else I can do but sleep. The mask becomes a positive, self-fulfilling dynamic. Make the room as dark as you can and then wear the mask. I'm in hotels two, three hundred nights a year. I can't guarantee a truly dark room. I run around and unplug all the electronics. and But I make it as dark as I can, but then I put that sleep mask on. And the darkest our friend, you may not get one more minute of sleep. You will rock your world right now 
if you go to bed tonight in a truly dark room and wear the sleep mask and set that alarm, we're going to get a bed to turn it off and start tonight rocking your world. A nicotine is not our friend. There's always somebody who says, all right, I have a dip and I have a smoke and I stay awake wrong. Caffeine is our friend, but it's important. Caffeine is one of the best drugs we have if you're not abusing the drug on a daily basis. You need a quadruple shot latte to get you going in the morning. A 64-ounce big gulf Mountain Dew to carry you through the morning. Another quadruple shot latte or two at lunch and a six-pack. A Rock Bowl Star Monster energy drink after lunch. You're abusing the drug. Right. And when you need it, it will not be there for you. What I tell people is, is first take the challenge. Cut off all caffeine for one day. If you get withdrawal symptoms, that's what's happening. Those are withdrawal symptoms. Headaches, shakes, digestive problems, irritability. You go cold turkey for one day. If you get any withdrawal symptoms, it's living proof you're abusing the drug. Build up a tolerance. You habituated yourself to that drug. When you're driving your family home at night, at, you know, from vacation, it's two o'clock in the morning, your head is bobbing, and caffeine is not there for you to keep you and your family alive because you've been abusing it on a daily basis. We are in the middle of a civilization-wide epidemic of caffeine abuse. So what we know about caffeine is this, that coffee and tea appear to be two of the best things we can put in our body. Recent research replicated over and over again. I had trouble believing it when I first saw it coming up over and over again. Coffee drinkers across the board are living several years longer than non-coffee drinkers. A lot of people say, I must be immortal then. Well, here's what we know. Two, three, maybe four normal cups of coffee a day are good for us. One or two, or tea. Coffee or tea at breakfast, cup or two of normal-sized cups at lunch. Then switch to decaf, have all you want. The half-life of caffeine in our body is five hours. That means the caffeine it took at 5 p.m. is still a half strength going to go to bed at 10 p.m. And it's making us have bad quality sleep. People say caffeine develops my sleep. Then why are you taking it? Caffeine doesn't make you not sleep. Caffeine makes it easier to stay awake and harder to have quality sleep. Guard your sleep. Protect your sleep. Sleep is that little vacation that waits at the end of every day. Now, caffeine is the enemy of good sleep. So what we know is that uh, the sodas, two different studies last year shown the sodas are carcinogen. And the diet sodas, two different studies this year, shown us the diet sodas are being metabolized in ways we didn't think they were. And the energy drinks are pure poison. We'll come back to energy drinks. It's important. But folks, why would you put that stuff in your body? Now, one soda a day is like having one candy bar a day. It's going to kill you. But if your only form of nutrition was candy bars all day long, you know, it'll kill you. That's having, if your only form of hydration, powdered down sodas all day long, you got a problem. The diet soda is even worse. If that's your only form of hydration, uh, if you pounded down those all day long, they're chemical poison. And the, the energy drinks, are condensed poison. We've been at war for 17 years. We're now in our 18th year of war. For the first 15 years, we pass energy drinks out like water. They get in us, we get into the troops, aren't we nice guys? But two years ago, Department of Defense did two major studies. And for all practical purpose right now, energy drinks are banned for issue to any of our troops. So like cigarettes, you want to buy your own, not going to stop you. You're an adult, but we're never going to give them to you. Want to buy your own energy drinks? Go ahead. But we're never going to give it to you. In a tactical environment, the one taking the most energy drinks are the ones most likely are not off on the job. In a in an academic environment, the one taking the most energy drinks were the ones with the worst grades. There is nothing in that energy but a mega dose of caffeine and maybe some things that help us metabolize it faster. 
the energy drink will give you a one hour burst of physical ability and then you will crash. All the other drinks after the first one is total waste. Oh, you feel good for about 10 minutes, but then you crash. You know, I love growing plants and um, I have plants in the house. And when I lived in Texas, I had a garden and I always thought I would never put a Coke or a monster in my plants, <laughs> right? Like a plant would die if I put... Why would you put it in your body? Right. A plant would die if I used monster to water it for a month. It would die, right? I would never use it, right? So if I can't put it on my plant, I'm not going to put it on my body. Why would we put all that stuff on our body? Energy drinks, diet sodas, sodas, when coffee and tea, water. If you're really burning up electrolytes, if you're sweating a lot, Docs say uh, cut Gatorade 50% and replace electrolytes. Just plain water is what our body is made to do. And there's so many good things we put in our body. So caffeine is our friend. But what caffeine does is it makes us have bad quality sleep. We're not getting the deep cycle sleep that we need. And that deep cycle sleep is so important. We believe sleep deprivations, the research shows over and over again, sleep deprivation and bad quality sleep is a key factor in Alzheimer's. And it's during that deep cycle sleep that the body flushes all the garbage out of the brain. If you never get that deep cycle sleep, what happens to all that garbage? I tell all my audiences one last thing, and people will always come up and give me case study after study. Go to the lab, go to the sleep lab, and get wired up for one night. A third of your life will be spent asleep. Let it be good quality sleep. Cop came up to me earlier this year. She said, she said, I had seven years of headache. And then I went to the sleep lab, and I wore that CPAP machine. And I woke up without a headache for the first time in seven years. It is the single most beautiful thing that has ever happened in my life. Two, you know, I talked about just yesterday, training a bunch of cops in Kansas. And two old cops come up and they, they, it was so beautiful. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I never realized how bad I was until I put that CPAP machine on. And so, folks, go to the lab. Get wired up. The sleep deprivation has taken years off our life. It's making us have bad quality life. First, get quality sleep. Control alcohol or control caffeine uh, alcohol does not help us sleep alcohol will put you out for a little bit but it works against you later don't don't use alcohol to go to sleep it's counterproductive mm -hmm. use caffeine intelligently sleep in a truly dark room use naps naps should not get in the way of a good night's sleep if you know you're going to be able to get a good night's sleep use some discipline and don't nap during the day because that can get in the way of a good night's sleep and the rim sleep happens at the end of a good night's sleep and it's hard to replace that Use caffeine intelligently. Sleep in a truly dark room and pace yourself for the long day. Sleep deprivation is taking years off our life and it's making us have bad quality life. We're not the cop we want to be. We're not the, the military we want to be. We're not the spouse we want to be. We're not the parents we want to be when we're sleep deprived. Sleep deprivation taking years off our life, making us have bad quality life. So when I'm out here on the road, you know, I don't always get the chance to exercise. I lug myself around, I trot through an airport. But the one thing I can do is manage my sleep, sleep in a truly dark room, use caffeine intelligently and, uh, you know, wear that sleep mask. And, and that's what sustained me across these years. On I, I really believe that I've got the self-discipline to make my body sleep. And, and I've also got the self-discipline to control food. It just don't eat so much. You've just one bite. You know, the, the idea that we have to finish everything on our plate is just destroying us. And when you're in, on the road and you're in a restaurant, you can't control your portions. You can't control your portions. So don't feel any obligation to eat it all. It costs the same whether you eat it all or not. And after you start leaving one bite, then you start realizing, hey, I hit a point 
where that food stops tasting really, really good. And why don't I stop there and start controlling those dynamics? Control what you put in your body and manage your sleep. And so many other things will fall into place after that and enable us to endure for that long haul. But then we, we come around to effect of a traumatic event, how your body responds, how your mind responds, to be forewarned and forearmed and know how to deal with it afterwards. And that would be a great one to talk about on some future podcast if you'd like. Yeah, I'd love that. Your habit is when you travel, you always leave at least something, a piece of food on plate. That's your rule. That's a good rule. Yeah, one little bite. And very quickly, you, you begin to figure out that I don't need all of it. You know, I was just, it was in a habit. What do you make yourself stop? I, a friend of mine travels with me in some of our presentations. He makes fun. He said, Grossman, I, I, I need what Grossman is. Don't eat that. Oh, I'm hungry. Go. Leave one bite. Oh, we're just cold. But once you get it in your head, it starts influencing the way you think and the way you eat. And I think the research is clear also that eating inside of a window, about inside of an eight-hour window, and you can't always manage that. Maybe it'll be a 10-hour window today. But we'll have breakfast about, you know, about 6.30-ish. Try to stay inside of a 12-hour window to have dinner by, by 6.30 in the afternoon and stay in that window. The research is clear. The more you move outside of that 8, 10, 12-hour window, that your body metabolizes the food differently. And so, so snacks it in the middle of the night or, that really can be doing more harm than, than they should as far as the raw calories you're putting in, when you put it in, can be every bit as, as important as how much you put in. I have one more question for you. I know we're running out of time. Um, is there one bad habit or one weakness that you have and you wish you could get rid of, but you just were not successful? Yeah, you know, I probably should run more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in good shape at 63 years old. But, uh, you know, and you'll see me trotting through an airport. I, I'm like Muhammad Ali. I've always hated running. I don't mind exercise. I walk for a lifetime. I can trot to get somewhere fast. But running for its own sake has always been one of my personal weaknesses. And I, I do okay. I take a physical twice a year. I got a good doc. I, you know, I, 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 this is my body is all I got. You know, this is this is where my income, this is where everything comes from is my speaking. And, and, uh, and so I got to take care of it. I go to my doc twice a year and everything's great. I mean, truly, truly very good. I strive for that. I work for that. Except my, my lung capacity is a little more, you know, aerobic workout every time, a little more aerobic workout. So I try to fit it in. But uh, that's my great weakness out there. All of us have one. And I think we can live with one or two. But as they start building up on us, then they start taking us apart. And so we identify like Muhammad Ali, right? He didn't want to get up in the morning, so he put his running shoes on top of the alarm. He grabbed his running shoes. The you that goes to bed is telling the you that wake up, we got to get up. And, and that's your little signal. So it's, uh, there's, there's many things out there uh, that all of us can deal with and pace ourselves for that long game. We need four-quarter players. We need seasoned players. Military, law enforcement, the bad guys are not going away. There'll still be guys out there tomorrow to go hunt. There'll still be time tomorrow to do the right thing. As you love your family, as we love your job, as you love our nation— we got to pace ourselves for the long game, these dark and desperate times. Thank you so much for that answer. And I'm a runner, so maybe when you come to L.A., I'll, I'll take you for a run um, here in L.A. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so maybe next time we talk about um, post-traumatic growth and moral injury. Those are some of the subjects I know both you and I are interested in. Um, is there anything else, any, any words of conclusion? You know, just uh, the legacy out there is the books. You know, it's fun to present to people. It's fun to talk to people. I love these podcasts. I honor you for doing the podcast. I honor everybody who's hearing this podcast right now. You know, I'd be on national TV for a little three-minute blip. 
said the ability to put anything of any quality out, any depth of information doesn't exist in the media. Even the, the newspaper articles or the magazine articles are so tragically shallow. It's with these that you can dig deeper in there. And I encourage everybody to do that. And I really feel like the books are a way to have a far deeper understanding. Uh, my website is killology.com. It's linked to our, our online store, get it on amazon.com. We also have an online class. One of their best online providers, V Academy, they set up grossmanacademy.com, www.grossmanacademy.com. You get an e-copy of my book on combat or on killing. I recommend on combat first. Get an e-copy of the book. You work all the way through the book. You pick up some semester credit hours, some in-service hours. So the podcast is one thing. But to truly dig in deep, then we got the books. And all three of my major books on killing, on combat, and the latest one's Assassination Generation. All three, I did the reading for them. Uh, it's my voice, and it's been really well received. And it's a way to dig in deeper. So follow up on the books on combat, on killing it, and the most recent one, assassination generation, and understand how bad the situation is at the domestic level and how much we need our shipbacks. Well, thank you so much for your time. And the books are great. I, I recommend as well. All right. Thank you, sir. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's anna.v.fedotova.mil at mail.mil.